When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying And you've taken all the potions you had left And you feel like you are doomed because the demon you set loose is coming after you And you can smell its breath Don't ever give up Welcome to Roleplaying Exchange, I'm Chris Hammond And I'm Adam Thornsburg and I'm the guest this time. My name is Greg Stolze, and I've been writing games for like the last couple decades. That's right. And uh, we have Greg on today due to uh, his new Kickstarter, Unknown Armies, 3rd Edition, which is doing amazingly. We just passed uh, 2,000 backers, which I find very exciting. I'm not sure you can call it my Kickstarter because Atlas Games is running it, and there are a lot of other people with their fingers in this pie. So I was the, I guess, head designer. But there's a lot of other writers, artists, editors behind this. I, I do have one bone to pick with you, though, unfortunately. Ruh-roh. There is no $333 uh, pledge. Level. Oh, man. Well, the, complain to Cam about that. Cam Banks is running the Kickstarter, and that does seem like an... Uh, an obvious level to have missed. But, you know, I didn't pick up on it either. So, yeah. yeah. He's Boy Monster on Twitter. I think he's having a bad day today, but oh, yeah, send, send him an email on Monday when he's back at work. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. I don't, I don't want to make his day worse. <laughs> now, Cam's a good guy. It's Working with him on UA has, uh, has been very helpful. He has been very understanding of my need to occasionally call him up in a panic and be reassured which I think is an, an element of editing and development that maybe doesn't get discussed enough. I, I can believe that. So Unknown Armies is an, almost an indie darling among the uh, RPG community. Everyone who who's really big into it, it knows of it. It seems like it's been very formulative to a lot of people. I know it was for me. Well, I'm flattered to hear that. Unknown Armies was... Boy, was that the first set of rules that I worked on that got published? Probably, yes. So it's the first uh, rule set I ever developed. And it was most... I'm trying to think what percentage-based games I was playing in high school and junior high that must have infused it. Because when I started writing Unknown Army's first edition, I had never actually played Call of Cthulhu. I know I played something with a percentile system because, you know, I knew what a percentile system was. Yeah, it was, I got into it before I had any real idea what I was doing, but apparently absorbed enough from, you know, playing D&D and Over the Edge and reading Star and Star Frontiers and trying to think what other games I played a ton of when I was, uh, you know, what my formative games were. Car Wars, presumably, a lot of Starfleet battles, but which aren't really role-playing games. So mostly D&D, I'd guess. And then I got into college and drifted into Jonathan Tweet's over-the-edge game while he was still selling insurance and suddenly got this idea that, oh, huh, there's a lot more to this role-playing thing than Dungeons & Dragons. Who knew? Huh. So what made you and John Tynes like, come up with the idea of UA? Because it's, it's one of the most bizarre settings out there. It's interesting. John and I both feel like unknow like the first edition was mostly done by the other person. Tynes came to me with ideas of avatars and the invisible clergy and the the cosmic reboot 
and some ideas for adept schools. And, you know, from my perspective, he had all the foundational vision and I just pretty much filed things in an orderly fashion, you know, built a rudimentary game mechanic to handle them and, you know, exercised some emotional demons I was dealing with at the time into the product. And from his perspective, he just came at me with this mess of weird ingredients and I somehow turned it into a meal. So we had this this lovely conversation at one point, you know, probably while we were getting ready to do UA2, where it emerged that each of us thought the other was the primary creative force in the first book. All right. So that that's the kind of uh, collaboration you want if you can get it. Well, I, I hope to aspire to that someday. So, yeah, he had the idea of a a setting where the apocalypse was always imminent, but that each apocalypse was like this phoenix-like cosmic rebirth. The universe would be destroyed and recreated, but that the shape of the new universe would be determined by what people had done in this one. So it's sort of karmic reincarnation on a giant scale that if you know we are decent and brave and stand up for the little guy, we will get a kinder, gentler universe eventually. Whereas if we are cowardly and hateful and selfish the next universe will reflect those as its values. Hmm. It's, and, and it really is, you know, it's like you can tell that this was written by Americans who have, had been sort of indoctrinated in the ideas of American-style democracy. And so part of it was, you know, he, he just wanted to write about a bunch of stuff he liked uh, and that on the surface this was, uh, you know, booze and sex and crazy violence but underneath it it was more like politics and philosophy awesome and researching for this i did notice that unknown armies has been attributed as being a very humanist game i guess that's where that philosophy definitely shines through with it well in some ways we were both dealing with our own backlashes right and backlashes may be a strong word because Tynes was, I think, I think it's fair to say, he was reacting to the Lovecraft Call of Cthulhu idea where it's cosmic horror and you are this insignificant protoplasmic blob that's, you know, you're an Elder Things leftover fridge mold, basically. And, you know, okay, cope with that. You know, you're an ant at Cthulhu's picnic. How's that feel? You know, drag that back to the queen and explain it in the nest. So he was reacting against that and wanted a setting where, no, what you do matters. It matters so much that you are under this terrible burden. You are under this pressure of having to do the right thing, even if you're not equipped to do it, because everybody else is even more ill-equipped to do it. So, you know, he kind of came at it from that way. Something that at the time... I was resisting to, I was resisting at the, the time that we were working on unknown armies, one vampire, the masquerade was, was super huge. I didn't like the idea that it, it, it seemed, you know, somehow fundamentally unfair or undemocratic to, uh, you know, my little, 
liberal small town Iowan soul that okay, in order to be a vampire in this game, you got to you have to be turned by some more powerful patron. I'm like that ain't cool. And then Mage the Ascension came out, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, mages are these people who are born special. And I'm like, that ain't cool. And, you know, same thing with Werewolf. And I'm like, all the all these really popular, uh, you know, they, they called them horror games then. And, you know, to an extent, I'd say dark fantasy or urban fantasy would be a more accurate level, a more accurate descriptor of how they were actually played at the table, but all of them had this, you are a unique and special snowflake because, you know, you were born that way or because you got bitten by a radioactive werewolf or because of something outside of your control. And I wanted characters to be a little more proactive than that. I wanted to say, okay, no, if you're this weird it's because you enweirdened yourself. If you're an adept in unknown armies, it's not something that was done to you. It's something that you very deliberately did to yourself and you alienated yourself from normalcy in the pursuit of power. Unknown armies has always been a game that asks, okay, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to be in order to attain power? You know, is, is the price too much? How about now? Well, maybe, uh, maybe we'll change the deal. So that is, you know, that's where we came from with the original foundational idea. And at the same time that we wanted to, to empower the autonomy of the characters, we also didn't want them to be these sort of, uh, you know, glitter boy type characters who just trample over everyone who's not a level boss. Uh, you know, for whatever value of level boss you apply to your game. We wanted, you know, no, you should worry about an ordinary guy who's coming at you with a sharpened screwdriver. That should be scary. You should be afraid of the cops in this game if you commit crimes, and possibly even if you don't. Uh, an attitude that in the, you know, in the present day seems a lot more sensible. Yeah, you guys are in Florida, right? So... I am. So, uh, yeah, I'm in Kentucky. So, you know what I'm talking about. It's nasty. Yeah. yeah there, there's horrifying things that you find out about in Chicago. Uh, apparently the police here, according to the Guardian, the police here were operating a black site in the city. I read about years. that. That's the kind that we wanted to touch on the realities of human corruption and, you know, milk some horror out of that and get people to, you know, consider that and, and, you know, to have that, those elements in play. I like how with this approach, you guys have set it up to someone's like Nietzsche, I think I'm saying that correctly, expression of, you know, beware ye who looks in the abyss for the abyss looks back at you. But if I, if I'm understanding this correctly, when you're looking in that abyss, Unknown, unknown armies, you're also affecting it. So you could make it, uh, and it sounds kind of bizarre to say this, but like a kinder, gentler abyss for tomorrow. <laughs> well, you're filling the abyss, or uh, you know, there's not. Is there? Is there even an abyss in unknown armies? You could argue that there isn't. That it is a universe of inherent meaning, which sounds super positive. 
until you look at what people what people actually have done in history and you're like okay that's not the result of inevitable social forces or it's not because you know we fell from grace in the garden of eden and it's not because uh you know nyarlathotep is operating behind the scenes manipulating us to make us do the wrong thing now human evil happened in history because somebody thought it was a good idea or at least an acceptable one. And that's, that's the big challenge of unknown armies is, okay, well, if you are a good person or think you are or want to be one, what change do you want to make? And how far can you go pursuing that change before you stop being a good person? If you sacrifice all your morals in order to achieve the greater good, have you really achieved the greater good? Hmm. So that's, you know, these are the big abstractions that we have underlying the game. You know, on top of that, we've got all kinds of, you know, crazy gunfights and uh, weird monstrous byproducts of human will and, you know, our adepts and avatars running around trying to say, no, not your way, my way. <laughs> and also the Scotsman. Yeah. Oh, did you say the Scotsman? I did. Ah, yeah. Well, and that's okay. So one of the uh, one of the organizations, one of the the factions that's in the uh, the first and second editions, is a group of idealists who infiltrated America's most popular burger chain because they had a geoman. You know, it was founded by an adept, a geomancer, and uh, an avatar. And they thought, okay, if we map the ley lines of the United States and start just randomly putting, you know, if we start adding magical energy to it by having adepts generate charges and then transfer them into people somehow, into everyday people, we can democratize the occult energy flow of America and make it more organized. There's a little bit of Newtonian mechanics, right? If you don't add energy to a system, it will run down and achieve total entropy. But conversely, if you keep adding energy to a system, it tends to get more and more organized. That's why life on Earth has gotten more sophisticated as energy from the sun has, you know, hit chained amino acids and agitated them and so forth. So this group figured out that, okay, the the veins and sinews of America are its highways. And what is along every highway juncture? Well, there's a McDonald's. <laughs> so they got jobs at these fast food restaurants and started putting magical charges in the food and just giving them to people at random. And it's been established over the course of, you know, Unknown Army's first edition, it talks about how they're doing this and everyone thinks they're nuts, that they're basically just, you know, generating power and pissing it away on these schlubs who have no idea what to do with it. And it's going to be at the best a waste and at the worst a tragedy. And then in Unknown Army's second edition, it talks about how they completed this ritual at the turn of the millennium, you know, when 1999 turned to 2000, they performed this, you know, global protective ritual 
to make the world a little bit better and safer as it entered the new millennium. And we wrote that in like 2000 or 1999. And so now we have to address the post 9-11 sort of blowback for what happened to these idealists whose plans worked, who indisputably proved that, no, you can get you can herd the cats of adepts and get them on board to do something and you can make that work and it can be done. And so, you know, where we went with them in third edition is that on one hand, their methods have been proven. On the other hand, you know, nine 11 kind of sucked a lot of, a lot of the optimism out of them. And so now they've broken up into all these factions, usually oriented around a different fast food franchise. Or uh, so, you know, there's there's one that, you know, the the original people stick with uh, serving the Scotsman. But there's, you know, those who serve the colonel, those who serve the mermaid, those who serve the king. And they all are doing the same. They have the same methods, but are sort of fracturing along ideological lines. The other thing that's really impacted that group is, you know, the way that cybersecurity has developed over the last decade and a half. And that, you know, before they were, you know, communicating through an email list and it was not secure and they were completely infiltrated almost immediately. And so there's still a few diehards who are like, no, this was the original vision. We're going to stay on this list and invite in anyone. And they're just, it's like, and everyone else is like, you guys, you've got a best buy date printed on your chest. There's only so long you're going to go before one of these other factions or cults just swallows you whole. So they're the 4chan of the magical world. (laughs) Well, if 4chan considered themselves a positive, optimistic force for good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there are others who are like, okay, no, what we need to do is the same thing with the fast food, but, you know, we need to be more organized and smart about it, and we need to have a different agenda than just shiny, happy people. You know, we're, and so, you know, that, that's, that's one of the developments that has happened. Another one, the, the probably, I think the first faction that Tynes came up with was a group called the New Inquisition. And the premise he had there was that this self-made billionaire stumbles across the reality of the occult underground and finds out that, okay, no, the people who really know what's going on are almost to a man, people who could not get a bank loan. This, this will not stand. This is too disorganized. Everyone is just running around doing their own thing off on their own weird trip. So they clearly need a strong guiding hand to mold them into a, a force that will do good things in the world as defined by me, Alex Abel. And so in first edition, first and second edition are all about him, you know, forming this secret army of occultists and assassins and ex-cons who are, you know, going around 
rumbling with other cabals trying to recruit or destroy adepts. Uh, you know, if there's an object that has suspected magic powers, they steal it. And so they, they were all running around doing all this James Bond stuff in first and second edition. And so the suggestion, sort of the progress we've made for third is the suggestion that after 9-11, as, as so many things changed in the American security apparatus, that a lot of adepts and criminals got swept up in that. And this includes all the major factions got chunks torn out of them by you know, the reorganized uh, American and international security forces who just don't like weirdos flying into strange places with poorly described reasons. And so the new Inquisition has sort of rebuilt itself much more like a cult. And, you know, it's it's been wounded, but Abel's still there, but has sort of entered his Howard Hughes phase and is, you know, off on his own in isolation as this mysterious former business titan turned recluse but he is uh, running his the he's running the new inquisition as a cult of personality now and so it's it's much more like scientology than it was uh, than it is like a a uh, hidden mafia that's, so that's another one of the the factional changes we worked that sounds amazing i'm so excited yeah one more question though okay keeping 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 up with the factions what's going on with the freak uh okay so this was an idea I had a long time ago, and if if you've read, you know, the, the ancillary novels and stuff, um, the center of the idea of the freak, as originally presented, uh, the freak was sort of this outlier, this tremendously powerful adept and avatar. And adepts are people who, you know, gain their power and position by going against the traditional narrative. And by, you know, they, they are people who fight reality. Avatars are people who go along with reality and have found ways to benefit from accommodating it. The metaphor I used in the, the new edition is that avatars are the people who get to cut to the front of the line at the nightclub and greet the bouncer by his first name and get escorted into the VIP room, whereas adepts are the guys getting thrown out the back door who are screaming, well, I'll just start my own club, and it'll have gambling and klezmer music. I'm and that club. So the freak managed to align these two, these two approaches, and all it cost was most of its sanity, all of its friendships, you know, and it, it's just this miserable, paranoid murderously powerful thing that's running around the occult underground. It has, it has pretty much perfectly monstralized itself. And so what is, what happens to the freak in third edition is a little unclear, but it seems pretty likely that on March 3rd, 2003 in Florida, in fact, the Freak met with the Comte Saint-Germain and the two of them together entered the House of Renunciation, which means that 
the count. Okay, so for those of you who aren't totally up on the Unknown Army's mythology, there was one immortal human being who was sort of the one consistent factor through all these universal destructions and recreations. And that's known in this incarnation as the Comte Saint-Germain. The first and last man who, you know, is the first person who evolves as an identifiable human in each incarnation of the universe, lives throughout all of human history, and is the last one to get incorporated into the the force that creates the next the next incarnation of the universe. So this was this powerful, mysterious patron who moved behind the scenes and had seen it all, seen all of human history, had seen you know countless cosmoses rise and fall way beyond your petty human concerns of of ethics. And, you know, there were bits in the fiction that, that, you know, kind of implied that the Compte was getting a little tired and fed up with humankind. And so on, you know, March 3rd, 2003, stopped being the immortal. And now what was once the freak is now the caretaker of the universe. But... Having been through the House of Renunciation, which is this other mystical force that takes you and makes you into your own worst enemy, uh, what was once the first and last man is now going by the name Old Mother Apocalypse and is no longer immortal, no longer mentally equipped to remember thousands of universes of reality and is no longer dedicated to the continuance of the cosmos at all costs. Old Mother Apocalypse is dedicated to finding a way to derail the cosmic process so that the universe is not destroyed and does not reform. And her current plan is to stop all ascensions through the elimination of all human life on Earth. So she's fun. That's some pretty heavy stuff there. (laughs) Yeah. Did you ever read the scenario Joy and Sorrows? Yes, I did. So uh, part of the setup of Joy and Sorrows is that uh, the Comte had a series of wives and had a series of daughters. And it it gets creepy and gross. So, you know, strap in. This was one of Tynes' ideas. (laughs) This thing of of darkness, I acknowledge Tynes's. Um, So what happened is that the Comte and his wife, his wife was always named Sorrow, would have a baby, which was always a girl, and the girl was always named Joy. And Joy would be raised in this library. And once she got old enough, she would be the library traveled around like a TARDIS and was always materializing in various places. And when it materialized when she was old enough, she would seek out people and say, tell me the best thing that ever happened to you in your life? What was your greatest joy? And if people wrote their joys down, she would put them in her library and they would be incorporated into the next cosmos. So people who, you know, if she, if you pick, if she picked you, your joy could outlast the universe. You could contribute one tiny bit, one little scintilla 
of formative energy to the next world. But this doesn't always go smooth because when joy shows up and says to you, okay, tell me your greatest joy, sorrow will also show up and offer you a deal. And the deal is, okay, you know the thing you regret most in your life, your greatest sorrow? I can undo that. I can make it so it never happened. I can rewrite reality, take you back to that save point, and, you know, it'll be like whatever that awful tragedy that gripped you. I'll make it like it never happened. All you have to do is drag Joy out of the library and give her to me. And so some people are, who are like, yeah, you know, I, I had something terrible happen in my life. I'm going to undo it. They drag Joy out. And when Joy comes out, sorrow, or actually at this point there are usually several sorrows, will find a spot on Joy's body where a little story has been tattooed. And they will cut that out and give it to the person. And what they cut out is the tragedy because it turns out that the tragedies that uh, in, that afflict the people joy has uh, joy approaches are always caused by the sorrows because when the sorrows get their hand on joy they forcibly tattoo her with some horrible little event like his wife died when she was flying back from her tour of duty in Afghanistan or he tripped and fell in front of a car and got his spine broken. And so if you choose to torment this little girl and have a horrible, horrible, pointless tragedy happen to another person, you can undo your horrible, pointless tragedy. And when Joy has had enough of these horror stories written on her and, you know, sometimes cut off of her, she becomes sorrow, leaves the you know, the library marries the Compte and has a daughter and the whole cycle begins again. It's like that short story, the button only with some body horror added in. So that's, you know, that was a, a bit from, I think first edition. And so in third edition, joy turns into sorrow, comes out of her library, goes looking for the Comte St. Germain, finds the ex freak instead and says, yeah, we're supposed to get married. And the freaks like, wait, no, <laughs> what? And then we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a kid, and I'm gonna marry my own kid. No, that's gross. What? And then you're gonna be dragging this kid out and t- tattooing stuff on it and torturing people. Nope, nope, nope. Sorry, so much nope. Won't do it. And so there are now these sort of, you know, there's no joy. Uh, the library's empty. The sorrows are like, what are we supposed to do now? And nobody has any idea what effect this is having on the cosmos. So that's what's had. So, yeah, you asked a short question. You got a long answer. I'm happy to get it. So I think you pretty much have answered this question already, but I just want to officially address it. So Unknown Army's first edition looks like it came out around 98 Second edition around 2002, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so in this upcoming rendition of it, what other new elements are being added to the pot, so to speak? Uh, well, we've added a bunch of stuff. The reason it took so long to get a third edition is that I always said that I always felt that I'd set a really high bar 
with my material for Unknown Armies and that all, all of us who worked on the first two editions had. And I did not want to write something for it, you know, just to stir the pot. I wanted, I'm like, I'm not going to do anything more for this until I feel like I have something really compelling to contribute. And, and, you know, and I didn't. And so for a while, I'm like, well, maybe that's just, maybe that's just all there is. But I can't remember if it was Cam who suggested this or if I eventually just came to my senses and thought, well, maybe the way to get a different perspective on unknown armies and, you know, restart it is to get a different perspective from other people. And so, you know, uh, with Cam's help, I assembled a, a team of new writers who could bring new perspectives to it. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's some old hands. Chad Undercoffler uh, turned in some great stuff and Tim Didopoulos contributed. And there's also, uh, you know, some people who are new to, I don't know if they're new to UA in this edition, but, uh, you know, have, you know, hadn't published anything for it before. So there's, so I'm very excited about that. And once they were there coming up with new things, it became much easier for me to come up with new things. Everyone was kind of fixated on how important computers have become to our culture. And I wanted to handle that with a great deal of care because I didn't want this to just turn into a like sort of a crypto cyberpunk game. So one of the things I added was the idea that the NSA at one at some point acquired a black hat hacker who had worked for Alex Abel. If you've read the book Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Mavra Piagetti was Abel's pet hacker. And so in the post-9-11 giant pile of money explosion that hit the NSA, she got hired on by someone who had some inkling that she knew more than she was telling about, you know, weird mystical stuff. And he's like, I think that we should build a computer that can look for oblique connections that are not obvious to human logic. And she's like, okay, sure, I can do that. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll incorporate some elements of this homunculus-creating ritual that, you know, I grabbed from my old boss. And so successfully created this... It's hard to describe what it is. It's called Nomon, and it's a internet-based NSA-centered machine intelligence. But and it has some interest in you know catching sleeper agents, but it also is running its own agenda, and no one's quite sure what that is. But one of the magic schools is now you can gain charges by interacting with Nomon, which is not. Not easy or healthy, because when this thing says, oh, I'd like to pick your brain about a few things, it really picks your brain. But if you can, you know, face the uh, the sanity checks, you can get charges from it and then ask it questions, and it will give you oblique answers that it will uh, get you information you have no other way of finding out. And so, you know, built around Nomon, there is this little... Uh, you know, group inside the NSA that has some idea of what this thing is. No one's quite sure because Maverick gets killed somewhere in the middle of this. And so 
There's these NSA agents sort of poking around at this. Noman itself is reaching out to assorted people, and people outside it are finding it from these online quizzes that it runs. And so that's uh, that's a new, an entirely new element. Another thing I added in, there was a rumor in Unknown Armies 2 about Ordo Corpulentus, and it was just sort of a, a brief throwaway about when people combine ritual cannibalism with deliberate obesity with overt cultural imperialism, that's just a bad, bad scene. And so I had to write them up. Uh, and so you have these these horrible, hyper-patriotic, obese, cannibal necromancers. So, Trump supporters. Eh, that's mean to say, but they did kind of ask for it. (laughs) A little bit. I wrote all that before the Trump candidacy was anything other than a joke. Yeah, it's kind of scary. So, yeah, they believe that America is the best, and that the world will be a better place when everyone is their kind of American. Uh, you mentioned uh, charges before. Does this ah. mean the system's kind of more or less the same? Have there been any? The system is largely the same. I have I've streamlined it a bit. So the state of the art in role playing game mechanic design has moved on since two thousand two, and I have attempted to uh, you know drag unknown armies into the tw- farther into the twenty first century. Uh, by streamlining things a bit, by making things a bit clearer, it shouldn't be. It, uh, it should look pretty familiar if you played first or second edition. Uh, maybe just a little easier to get into. A few, uh, a bit fewer things to keep track of. So yeah, the mechanics are still based on a percental roll. Got rid of stats because no one seemed to... The, the two things that people seemed really excited about were do-it-yourself skills and uh, the madness meter. And so instead of having just, you know, random abilities under these stats and then the shot gauge off on the, the measures of how damaged you were in various ways off to the side... I've put the mechanic that measures how close you are to completely cracking up front and center. It's now called the shock gauge. And, you know, the idea being that, you know, you are the sum of your bad experiences or your good experiences. And so now, in addition to having, you know, okay, I've got five hardened notches in helplessness, so... The fact that my car won't start when I really, really, really need to get away from this situation. You know, I'm used to dealing with helplessness, so this won't phase me. That's how the meters used to work, that you would roll a stress check and see, okay, did the fact that my car won't start cause me to freak out? And if you had enough hard notches, the intensity of the stimulus required to make you take the role was higher. So it's really clear with the violence gauge. It's that, you know, okay, if you're a hardened combat veteran who's been through a lot of battles and ambushes and are, you know, and you, you've seen some shit, if someone comes at you swinging their fists, you're not going to panic and lose it. 
But if you've led a very sheltered life and no one has ever seriously tried to punch you before, then you might get really, really freaked out when someone comes at you fists a flailing. And so the meters gauge how much how much trauma you've had in these different segments of your life. And now I have put basic abilities uh, attached to the meters, some based on how many hardened notches you have and some based on how many open notches you have. So if you have in your violence meter, you know, you're the sweet suburban naif who has had a very sheltered life and you've got just one measly little hardened notch in violence, then your natural ability at struggle is going to be pretty low. You are not going to have innate gifts when it comes to biting and clawing. But your opposite ability in connecting with people, your ability to get along and seem like a nice person, that's going to be highly developed because you don't have, because you're not looking at everyone you meet like they're a side of beef you're going to carve a piece off of. If you get a bunch of hardened notches in violence, your ability to struggle improves, but your ability to connect diminishes. So that's that's part of it. Another part, what we've done with the do-it-yourself skills is expanded those a little bit. They're now called identities. And the idea is that, okay, this isn't just, well, you know, I know how to do X. It's I am blank. You know, you said earlier that you're a teacher. So that covers a lot more than uh, probably having a, a decent union rep and knowing how to speak sternly to children. You know, it covers more than being educated and knowing how to communicate that education to other people. So you can select features for your identity. Every identity that's... Uh, you know, every normal identity substitutes for one ability. So maybe you decide that your identity is I'm a charming used car salesman. And you've, you know, you're also a veteran ex. And so you've got all those hard notches and violence, right? You've got that thousand yard stare that's, that's left over from the battlefields of, uh, of Anbar province. But you can say, okay, no, but my high rating in car salesman substitutes for connect. So my natural ability to get along with people is maybe a little inhibited by the extraordinary things I've ex- experienced. But I can cover it up. You know, I'm not, ju- I don't have to rely on my natural ability to connect with people. I also have my used cars- car salesman's instincts and training and experience to deal with people. Similarly, uh, you know, if you took my identity as I'm a school teacher, you could substitute that for knowledge, probably. You know, well, yeah, of course, of course, I know a lot of stuff. Kids ask me stuff all the time, and I have to look it up and know how to find it. Or let's see, what's another example? One of the abilities is health, which is sort of general health club stuff, right? Are you in good shape? Can you run upstairs without breaking a sweat? You know, when the cold's going around, is there a chance you won't get it? You take an identity as triathlete, and you can substitute that for health. And it's obvious why you'd be able to do that, right? The time and effort I've put into training for triathlons is much more significant in determining whether I can do these pull-ups than just my natural ability based on what I've been through in life. So 
identities can do, a, you know, can substitute for other roles. You can choose to have an identity protect a gauge. So, like, maybe used car salesman protects your self-gauge. So it's like, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I maybe told these lies, but in the larger run of things, you know, the, the whole economy depends on dishonesty. So, you know, my used car salesman attitude protects me from too much introspection and guilt. And every identity also, you know, the very first thing each identity does is that you can use it any time that it seems obvious that you should be able to use it. So, you know, the, the rule of thumb is, of course, I can blank. I'm a blank. So, you know, for triathlete, of course, I own a bike. I'm a triathlete. Or... Of course I can tell how – of course I can tell if these protein shakes are expired. I'm a triathlete. A little more of a stretch, but yeah, probably still give it to you. Yeah, um, of course I know this person. I'm a school teacher, and we know that they have a school-age kid. I've taught their kid. Mm, maybe half of you roll at a penalty for that one. But that's, that's the idea how the do-it-yourself skills have evolved. I've noticed in um, a few of your more recent mechanics, like Better Angels and A Dirty World, that you have opposing. Yep, I this is this is straight out of that. Um, I like that mechanic a great deal, and I'm like, whoa! It seems obvious that I should be able to do it here, and then and thereby have a more compact mechanic instead of having do-it-yourself skills and the standard stats and skills and the madness meter. Now we just have do-it-yourself skills, and the shot gauge. Yeah, I I wanted it to be a little more compact. It's not anywhere near the kind of lightweight games that are more typical, I think, on the indie scene. But, eh, you know, it's an evolution rather than a complete redesign. Right. Uh, Have you noticed anything that, how this changes, like, the way the game is run? Mm, Not spectacularly so, no. And it may just be because I'm still the one running it, that it still runs the way it always did. Right. One thing that I did, I'll, I'll name check Vincent Baker and Apocalypse World. In the second book, the GM's book, I did I, I read Apocalypse World and played a few sessions of it. My Apocalypse World game didn't last very long, but one thing I noticed was how much Baker had attempted to codify the actions of GMing in Apocalypse World. And I thought that was a really insightful, insightful move. And so I'm like, that, yeah, you know, in Unknown Armies 2, we're like, okay, you know, here's how you GM it. Here's how you, you, uh, come up with ideas and, and, uh, Here's how you produce tone and here's how you, you know, produce motifs. But there was not a lot of extremely specific, okay, you know, do this at this point. You know, here is how you react to your players doing X. And so the traditional way that gaming has sort of moved through a population is that someone you you would 
learn how to GM from watching someone else do it. And, you know, then they would move on. So you have sort of Gygax and Arneson as patient zeros who taught everyone else how to G- how to, to be dungeon masters. Because, you know, I know I learned how to run games first by playing and watching how people ran them and thinking, I could do that. I could do that better than Jerry does. <laughs> and I think that's probably true for almost all GMs. It's like an oppositional apprentice system. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the limit there is that you have to find a master. And so I think, uh, part of the appeal of apocalypse world is that it assumes the, it does not assume that the reader has a master who has instructed them. It's like, okay, if you start from zero at running games, here's how. I've written a, a string of introductory scenarios for Delta for the new Delta Green, where my ambition is that you could hand the Delta Green books and this collection of scenarios to someone who'd never played a role-playing game before and say, okay, you can run this game by running these scenarios in order to learn the mechanics. And what I've got in Unknown Army's third edition is advice for the GM on, okay, here is how you can take your collectively generated local setting, predict the trajectory that the characters are going on, and pace things by you know withholding what they're after, making them work for what they're after, distracting them from what they're after, or straight up challenging whether they still want to chase what they're chasing. This is, okay, so this is probably the biggest mechanical addition to 3rd edition is an idea called Objectives. It's a little bit of, uh, it moves UA a little bit in the direction of my game Rain. Rain presumes that the characters are leaders and have some kind of social organization that they command and you know, they can have the organization do things for them instead of doing them themselves. Unknown Armies Third assumes that the characters want some objective bad enough to bite a guy for it. And so when you, in your first session, the first thing you do is, okay, what are we playing for? What is the change we want to make in the world? You know, what is the intolerable situation that we are collectively attempting to remedy? And so when I was out at a convention in Colorado recently, I was running sample character generation demos. So one of the examples of an objective, it's all based on putting pictures up on a whiteboard and drawing connections to between them until you get a crazy conspiracy board, right? Nice. And so I had this collection of evocative photos, and they picked out this one with this creepy white mask with all this machinery built out the back of it. And they stick that in the middle, and they said, okay, we created this thing, and it has escaped from us. And our objective is to either destroy it or bring it back in and take control of it again. None of us knew what this crazy mask object that escaped was, but that was their objective. And so then they all built characters who were involved in the creation of this thing. And we found out how they were related to one another. And, uh, you know, so they're putting up 
pictures of weird totem pole looking sculpture out in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, yeah, we don't know what this is, but weird things come out of this place. And we found, you know, that's where we found some of the components for the mask. And so it was really fun. And by the end of it, we had a bunch of fascinating characters who were complicatedly involved with one another and who wanted something very, very badly to, you know, recapture their, you know, their Frankenstein's monster, which they were, uh, you know, felt responsible for and were very worried about what it was going to do. And so that is what I think is the, the key innovation in third edition is that, you know, you start with, okay, what are we trying to do? Then you build characters who want to do that thing and, you know, the GM's involved with this. And then at the end, so if you're the GM, you now have the advantage in that they have told you exactly what this game is about. The game is about recapturing creepy masks. So you can now build around that with some confidence that, you know, okay, I don't think the players are going to get tired of this or not bite on this plot hook because it's the hook they asked for. You know, if I tell them, oh, yeah, Creepy Mask was, spy- was uh, you know, spotted in Tampa, they're going to go to Tampa. That's very nice for GMs because in most sandboxy type games, there's always this problem that the characters are just going to split and you won't know where they've gone. They're just going to hair off after something you're not prepared for. So objectives allow you to know what they're at, aiming at and also it pretty much gives you permission as GM to say, okay, how are you planning to accomplish this? What are some things you're going to try? How are you going to track Creepy Mask? How are you going to capture it? And so you now have them telling you, oh, well, we think we can find it by this way or that way or this third way. And you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so now I can prepare adventures for the three ways they've told me they're going to go about looking for it. And if they achieve those then I will put more percentiles in their objective. Your objective starts at zero. When it hits 100%, you know, however long that takes, you achieve your objective and can then start a new one. But this is a a good, good tool for pacing, I hope, in that it allows GMs to say, okay, their objective is now around 70 or 80%, so I know that they're going to finish it off pretty soon. So I should prepare for that. And if I'm not ready for that, if I think it's been going too easy for them, I know that I can throw more distractions in their way or I can uh, make it harder or you know, put up obstacles. And there's, a, there's a, a fair amount of discussion in the second book on how to manage those. So that's, that's me attempting to be Vincent Baker and help GMs GM through a process rather than through sheer intuition kind of going with the uh questions about third ed here uh what were some of the previous inspirations for unknown armies and you very touched on this with everything that happened post 9-11 but what are some other influences on this incarnation well the the very early ones I loved the Tim Powers novel. Uh, oh, Last Call. Yeah, Last course. Call. So Last Call was a seminal influence for me. I would say Tynes' seminal influence, we were talking about this, was Umberto Eco's novel Foucault's Pendulum because it is 
it kind of demolishes the idea of old school occultism and the whole Templar, Blavatsky, Illuminati, alchemy thing really gets put paid in that book. And it, it was what made him want to come up with something completely new and replace all the, uh, you know, as, I, as I've said before, he it's like Unknown Armies replaces all the black candles and chanting in Latin with sex, drugs, rock and roll. So those were foundational impulses. Uh, I've been telling everybody, I recently had the pleasure of reading the Unknown Armies novel, basically. Uh, it's Big Machine by Victor Laval. Uh, I don't think he's read Unknown Armies, but he's managed to write a novel that, you know, a, and it's a beautiful, brilliant, sad, funny, evocative story. And it, it just, you know, grips you and breaks your heart and has all this weird imagery and strange stuff going on. It's, I can't recommend it highly enough. Let's see, what else got poured into third edition? Well, probably, oh, Pandora's Labyrinth? No, Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Yeah. Pan's Labyrinth is awfully good. I mean, I don't know how much it affected this, but I strongly recommend it. The idea of this girl who's passing back and forth between a very ugly, scary real world and a very beautiful, scary, magical world. Yeah, you could definitely do that with Unknown Armies. What other influences do I have? The, have you you read about the myth of the Blue Lady? In uh, there was an article, I think I want to say it was in Florida, about how homeless street kids have developed this elaborate mythology of basically how the Virgin Mary turned evil and. Uh, you know, the, so it's this this bizarre, rich, alternate Christianity mythology. Oh, right, and the uh, angel statues try to protect her, protect them from her. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, that was in Miami, I think. So that's in there. Just all kinds of assorted internet madness. If you read the Dana Cossey book, Kooks, it's. You know, it's a fascinating walk on the wild side of, you know, the traditional view of religion and reality. So that one was definitely put some DNA in, uh, I think, second edition. So there we go. How do you go about maybe like creating pre-made scenarios for it in this case? Is that even possible? That's the hard part now, isn't it? Because... The idea is that it's a little bit like the difference between getting a suit tailored for you and buying a suit off the rack where it's one size fits all. Uh, you know, there are clear advantages. You know, your, your tailored suit is going to fit you much better. And going through this elaborate local setting generation objective-based process is going to fit your group a lot better. But it does make it really hard for Atlas to publish you know, traditional dungeon modules. So I think what we'll probably do instead, one thing I know they're going to do, this was their stretch goal for 2,000 backers, was to have a series of quick start kits where it's like, okay, there's a bunch of pre-generated characters, here's their objective, here is their intro scenario. And it's just like, here it is. Go, get in character, do this thing. And I can see, you know, space for a lot more individual adventures that way. 
the way I'd like to do it is to have sort of, what would it be? They would be like spin-off shows. If your main show is, you know, Unknown Armies Are Cool Characters, this would be the special holiday, the holiday special in which you're like, oh, so you know how you guys are always hanging around that creepy, that creepy haunted carpet store? Here's a scenario where you're all the employees of the creepy haunted carpet store. And, you know, you'll find out your, what's going on with them and their backstory and all that stuff. So, you know, the way that you could build those into, you know, the, the, standard expected UA3 game is, okay, I've bought the supplement for Creepy Haunted Carpet Store. I'll find a way to introduce the Haunted Carpet Store to our main narrative, have them meet the characters, and then when it's moved away from that, or when we finished up our current objective, we'll go back and it'll be like, okay, so here's like a little sequel off to the side. Here's what happens to the people in the carpet store. And instead of people in the carpet store, you could have it be the people in the New Inquisition or the people in the infiltrated Starbucks franchise. Or you could be it, you know, you could have it be, oh, so here are the local sleepers and I've bought this supplement that is, here's my creepy local sleeper cell supplement. And so I get these characters who are, and I can use them as antagonists or, you know, roadblocks to my mainstream campaign. And then later, if we have a player out or some other situation where things are, are going a little screwy, we can go off and do the one shot with the, you know, the unconnected one shot where the sleepers have to go and take down some crazy adept. So that's probably a direction we could move in. For our audience, what kind of advice can you give someone who is curious about the the hobby wanting to get into it just anything that that you've learned in your years of playing and creating um, okay uh, what I will say is finding a group of people you like and trust is more important than system or setting that if you show up wanting to play and people make you feel like garbage dump that group and find another one and, you know, don't let anyone tell you you don't belong. Uh, you, you should be able to find a group you can be in, assuming that you're not, you know, the abusive monster that's making everyone miserable. You should not have to put up with a bunch of crap to prove that you're a serious hardcore gamer because all of us at some point were the new guy. And even those of us who have been professionals for decades... There are so many games out there, so many styles, so many different different focuses and different modes that nobody can possibly be good at all of it and know everything. So, you know, approach with, uh, you know, humility, curiosity, and a willingness to go along, but don't put up with any abusive bullshit. And, uh, you know, when you find cool people... Make an effort to uh, make the schedule work. Awesome. On a side note, just want to say before we hang up, definitely enjoyed what you did on the Delta Green Star Chamber. I, that was great. Oh, cool. I, enjo- I enjoyed that. The subjectivity of each player was like a, oh, a game. 
Yeah, that editing that was a nightmare. <laughs> I can believe that. <laughs> that was that was such an ambitious idea, but you know, I'm like, well, Delta Green Delta Green in particular, you always have to bring your A game because it's like, you know, for the horror to work, you have to show them something they haven't seen before. And it's just like and with every scenario, there's one more thing they've seen before. So Thanks again for having me on. I'm going to sign out before I get the laryngitis. <laughs> Thank, Thank you for coming. You're certainly welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Roleplaying Exchange. If you like our show, please rate, review, or subscribe on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the better. Thank you to Greg Stolze for interviewing with us this week. And if you like our theme song, that is Critical Hit by Ghost Mice. Check them out on Planet X Records. I'm Chris Hammond. I'm Adam Thornsberg, and thank you for listening. Have a good day. Don't ever give up. Not all fights are won by skill. Some are won by luck. Don't ever give in. You've got to keep on trying till you lose or you win. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Wait with hope for the big 2-0. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Let it go. Let it roll, let it roll.